an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo News Radio, heard with Dave Ross and Colleen O'Brien Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, searching for a World War II mural hidden in the old USO Club in Oak Harbor. My grandfather put this drywall up to protect the mural from getting scraped up as this building transitioned to a series of retail spaces. And then, from the archives, the dramatic collapse of the grandstands at Husky Stadium. So I run down there and told the guys to get out, and literally, the dust hit us. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Our resident historian Felix Bunnell joins us every Friday morning for All Over the Map. Here's a quick look at the stories behind local places and things, and that includes bowling alleys, which, like a lot of things I grew up with, are rapidly approaching museum <laughs> status. This week, Dateline University Place, with the beloved Narrows Plaza Bowl, will close this weekend forever, but not before Felix made one last visit in his spare time. Don't, don't you just love bowling puns, Dave? Oh, yes. That's something that will never, never go in a museum, if never. I have any say in the matter. So this was just announced last weekend by the management. It took a lot of people by surprise. Narrows Plaza Bowl, South of Tacoma and University Place. It's closing this Sunday at 10 p.m. and never opening again. It dates back to only to 1983, which doesn't sound that long ago to me. It feels different than when one of those bowling alleys from the 50s closes, maybe like Sunset Bowl and Ballard. Now, the uh, Narrows Plaza Bowl was a site of a lot of big tournaments. It even hosted the Men's U.S. Open in January 1987. That's a big deal. One of the owners told the News Tribune they weren't looking to sell the property, but a developer named Wood Partners in Seattle made them an offer they couldn't refuse. So the bowling alley in an old uh, movie theater complex across the parking lot, which I'm told closed before the pandemic, will be demolished with housing built in their place. So I went down there last night. I'd never been before. Had to go take a look. I talked to a bowler there from Lakewood named Mike Miller. He's one of the many people who didn't expect Narrows Plaza Bowl to close. First of all, just the way, you know, the way it's, you know, it was built in the 80s instead of the 50s. The architecture was nice, but they just dropped a couple of million dollars into this place a few years ago, replacing all the scorers, the masking units, new lanes. Yeah. So it, out of all the bowling alleys in the area, I don't mean to put anything else down, but this one is the nicest. Uh, there was another guy out in the parking lot. Uh, he was pretty disappointed and upset, a guy named Irwin Downs of Tacoma. He was the most talkative member of a bowling team called the Lifers. They actually had even shirts that said that. I asked him why he was taking the closure of Narrows Plaza Bowl so hard. Because it's a place where I can come and have fun and not deal staple. with the crowd. It's, yeah, it's a staple for me. I've been here. I, I came here for 30 years, I promise you. And I've been bowling here since 92. They're closing on Sunday, and I said, we have to get one more session. We're, we're coming here all weekend because it's perfect for us, right? Help. Guys, don't. They were kind of having a good time. Yeah, and last night was busy. It didn't quite feel like we're at the hardcore grieving phase or the celebration of life part of the bowling alley farewell process that we're all so familiar with. Um, They're selling old pins for a dollar a piece. I met a bowler who had a big armload of them. The Good Times Lounge was pretty quiet last night, but the bartender Tiffany said tonight and Saturday will be big, especially karaoke on Saturday. And the little cafe was doing brisk business and french fries and pizza. and that's one thing. This does mean job loss for, I don't know, maybe a couple dozen people there. And most of the employees I talk to, they're sort of matter-of-fact about moving on to the next thing. But it's weird. I'm in my early 50s. In 1983, I was already alive and aware of things. And this seems like really early for tearing something down. It's, it's, yeah. it's not like something from the 50s. It's a very strange phenomenon. Yeah. 
Well, uh, and they're not going to move. There's no, uh, no, no. Uh, not sufficient demand for bowling anywhere else. Hmm. Well, there's definitely community. The people there were having a good time, and they've been there before. And it's you're losing the community, but you can't put yeah. a price on that, I guess, or you can put a price, and it's not as high as building new apartments there in University Place. So time moves on, I guess. Yeah. Well, we need housing, but what are those people in the houses going to do if there's no place to bowl? I know that's a yeah. big mystery. Whether we travel by water, land, or air. We are thrilled by the scenic grandeur of the evergreen state. More than 60 years ago, a business owner on Whidbey Island took extraordinary steps to save a one-of-a-kind artifact from World War II. Now, his granddaughters working to preserve this artifact and make it more accessible and even visible. Our resident historian Felix Bennell jumped into his history mobile and went to Oak Harbor <laughs> to get the story. Felix is brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Uh, that history mobile, boy, I need to get an upgrade on that one. Um, now, the song we heard at the top this uh, this uh, this piece was number one this week on Valentine's Day, 1943. It's Helen Forrest singing with the Harry James Orchestra from the hit film Springtime in the Rockies. We'll have more on that in a minute. Now, I just learned about the story over the weekend. I met up yesterday with Sarah Schacht outside a complex of commercial properties she owns in Oak Harbor. She calls it the Allgaier Project after her grandparents, John and Myrtle Allgaier. She lives in Seattle, but she grew up in Oak Harbor, and her roots there run deep. We're standing on Pioneer Way, which is the main street in downtown Oak Harbor, and the historic part of Oak Harbor on the waterfront. We're gonna go into one of my two buildings at the Allgaier Project and take a look at the hallway where the protected mural is. So this World War II artifact is a mural inside this old building and the building dates to 1905, was one of the first auto shops on Whidbey Island. But since 1942, when the air station first opened, Oak Harbor has been a Navy town. And in 1942, that old auto shop building became a USO club for sailors, a place to dance and hang out. And sometime in 1944, one of the sailors from the base, a 19-year-old radio operator from Swanton, Ohio, named Frank Griffin, painted a dramatic aerial and naval battle scene on the back wall of the club. So there's about a 25 by 12 historic World War II mural depicting the U.S. Navy, based out of NAS Whidbey, downing Nazi planes and Nazi subs. Looks like around the Puget Sound, there's mountains and water and smoking, <laughs> sinking Nazi subs. Uh, and it's a pretty vibrant mural based on the historic photography that we have access to through, through records. And yeah, my grandfather put this drywall up, I think gapped, to protect the mural from getting scraped up as this building transitioned to a series of retail spaces. So does that make sense? The mural's actually not visible. I spent yeah. four hours on the road yesterday to go look at a piece of drywall. <laughs> well, you, that's the very thing that you do. That's how you make your living. That, exactly. That's what I know. That's what I feel like. Yeah, that's what it feels right. So Sarah Schock believes her grandfather intentionally built a wall in front of the mural probably 60 years ago when he converted the building into a clothing store run by his wife Myrtle Allgaier called the Casual House. And it wasn't a secret. He actually taped an old newspaper clipping of the mural and a note about its existence, alerting anyone to what was behind that drywall. He clearly was trying to protect it. Mm -hmm. Now, I've tweeted out that only image of the mural that exists, and we'll have it at my Northwest. I sent a copy to you there, too, Dave. Did you yep. get a chance to see it? I, I did see it, yes. Very impressive. I mean, the Nazi part's fascinating. To have Nazis on a mural near the Pacific Ocean and not Japanese airplanes in 1944, that's still kind of a mystery. 
What's not a mystery is why the mural and the old USO club mean something to Sarah Schacht. Probably a better piece of information related to the mural is that at the USO club on Valentine's Day in 1943, he met my grandmother at a dance in this building, and he proposed three months later, and they spent 67 years together, including starting their business in this building. So I'm sure he had knowledge and appreciation and in a sense of the significance of the mural. Yeah, and I don't know if I had the craziest dream figured into Valentine's Day 1943, but it was the number one song the week that Sarah Shock's grandparents met. Now, Sarah's grandparents passed away more than a decade ago, and she lost her mother recently, too. So it's really up to her to address some issues with that old family building. I know that I have to remodel this back part of the building to make sure that the heavy rains we get every year aren't causing a problem. I cannot keep mopping up water <laughs> every winter. So sometime in the next year, I've got to pop the end of this building off and put a fresh one on. That is the ideal time to explore what state the mural is in and how we could preserve it and maybe even move it because I've heard from structural engineers that I could remove this wall and still have a structurally sound building. Um, that I could replace it with something else would be fine. So if I, if I need to make those repairs and improvements to the building, now would be the time. Yeah, and, and this is clearly important to Sarah. I mean, they're the outside of all the buildings she owns there in Oak Harbor are decorated with more recent murals and they commission artists all the time. But her grandparents loom large in the approach she's taken to managing those properties. They were big-time community boosters in Oak Harbor for decades. But it's clearly bigger than that, too. I just think, like such an interesting piece of Pacific Northwest and World War II history. And it, it also has this, this resonance right now in our world where I think folks are, are thinking about the fight between democracy and freedom and authoritarianism. And it's useful to be reminded of what, you know, our grandparents or great-grandparents' generation literally were inspired by. Yeah. So, it, it, I mean, she promises this is not an Al Capone's vault kind of thing. <laughs> and she's trying to get help figuring out what to do, how to best proceed, because she clearly needs to address some issues with the building and totally means to her that something you know, it's very important to her family. One really cool thing is late last night, a good friend of the show, the talented researcher, Lee Corbin, um, he found these copies, old copies of this thing called the Prop Wash, which was the Whidbey Island uh, Naval Air Station newsletter. Oh, right. He found copies from 1944, and it shows at least one more mural in that club. This is like a, a European scene, so maybe, I don't know, it's, 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 there might have been a third mural, too. It's unclear if those two survived, but it's 99% certain that this thing is behind the wall, and sometime in the next year or so, it's going to be revealed. But I assume cool some, you will be there. I assume you will be there when this... Uh, essentially oh, time I, capsule is open. We're, we're going to cover it live, Dave. Yeah, I, I, I had my crowbar with me yesterday. I offered to Sarah to get my oh, crowbar sure out of the did. car. But she, yeah. she said no. She said needs a pl she needs a clear plan of what to do once the thing is exposed because it's probably pretty fragile. And who knows, it might be damaged by water. We don't know. But yeah. it's cool that, that the family has preserved it for this long and that she's taken on this for the next generation. You know, they have these little uh, video scopes now. You can just drill a little hole in the wall and snake a scope see, down there and see what's there. If there's a listener who knows how to do that without destroying something, yeah, I'm sure Sarah would love to hear from him. Get in touch with me. I'll put you in touch with Sarah. We'll have all the information at My Northwest a little bit later this morning. Felix Bonnell, a resident historian. All of his efforts are on MyNorthwest.com. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity.
For this edition of From the Archives, the North Grandstands of Husky Stadium were under construction in February 1987 when something went terribly wrong. And time for historian Felix Bunnell takes us back to Husky Stadium, 1987, 32 years ago this week. The new North Grandstand was under construction, and then suddenly something went very wrong. Yeah, this was February 25th, 1987. Lighted construction of Spokane was about three months into a $13 million project at a new North Grandstand to Husky Stadium. Two of nine huge trusses topping out around 100 feet had been installed. Iron workers from a subcontractor called Canron were getting ready to install truss number three. The project superintendent for Leidig was a 47-year-old named Wally Sharp. It was about 9.30 a.m. on that Wednesday when it became clear that something was wrong. Well, Ed Griffith, my assistant superintendent, had come to me and said the iron workers weren't up on the structure working, that there was some problem. And so I said, go find out and get the guys out. I said, I don't want any, you know, take any chances, and then it come back that there was a bulge on one of the trusses up there where a temporary connection was holding the truss up, and so we cleared the stadium and cleared the work site. So the truss that was bulging was a 28-inch diameter cylindrical piece of steel that held up the roof and really the whole structure that was being built. Wally knew right away they had a potentially dangerous situation on their hands, so he and assistant Ed Griffin got all the construction workers off the stadium. Wally says this was about 60 people altogether. Uh, he then called his boss in Spokane, the project manager for Leidig, a guy named Larry Schwartz. By this time, it was 10 o'clock, and Wally remembered that there were a half dozen or so UW maintenance guys having their coffee break in a structure that everyone called the barn, and the barn was directly under the east end of the damaged grandstand. I just had walked out of the barn where the maintenance people from the U were. I was on the phone at 10 o'clock with Larry Schwartz, and said that we we had trouble, and I realized that that was break time, and so I run down there and told the guys to get out, and literally, and they backed the truck out, and the dust hit us. I, I was a bit, well, we were all within probably 50 to 75 feet of it when it went down. And what did it look like and sound like as it went down? I, I think we just stood there and off, because we were behind, uh, like, 50 feet, 60 feet north on the road going down to the maintenance barn. And, I mean, I, I, as I, re, I don't remember any real loud noises or anything. I'm sure there was, but I mean, it, it it was lost in all of the other things that all of a sudden had to be done. And I, I, I'm, a, I'm a little lost for words because I don't remember any noise. Yeah, and Wally Sharp knows that other people say it did make a pretty big sound. I was in my English class up on the hill not far away, and it sounded like a jet taking off on Montlake Boulevard. My sister-in-law was a little bit, few blocks away from there. She said it sounded like a giant flatbed truck dumping a giant load of pipes. Um, but the audio just didn't register with Wally. Uh, meanwhile, Larry Schwartz, the project manager, was flying over to Seattle from Spokane with company owner Paul Leidig. Larry was just 30 years old at the time. He said that as the car from the airport approached Montlake, there was a lot going through his mind. I knew that we were not going to see what had just the day before. when I took my wife to uh, dinner for her birthday <laughs> And was so excited about the fact that the stadium was really starting to take shape in the profile. And so I, I went from this super high level of excitement to what are we going to do now? Yeah. And what they did do was get cracking on figuring out what went wrong and then regrouping in order to get the stadium finished in time for football season, which amazingly they did. Uh, a couple things are really interesting about this. There were no lawsuits filed by anybody, and it's never been definitively determined what happened. Really? Um, Wally Sharp thinks there was miscommunication between the iron workers on the project and their offices in Canada. 
The theory is that the temporary guy wires had been supporting the structure were mistakenly detached by the iron workers as they got ready to move a crane in for that third truss. Because when you only have a partial structure up there, you need yeah. all this tension from both sides to hold it up. So that's, that's the general theory. Um, a lot of people consider Wally Sharp a hero because nobody was injured or killed in this, which is crazy. He's 79 now and pretty humble, and he says the whole thing was really a team effort. I guess I'm proud that, it, that, it, that there wasn't anybody killed or hurt. Um, and then, uh, you know, obviously proud that we were able to play the first football game there, too. It, it was, I think it was a pretty good accomplishment for all of us. I mean, it wasn't just me. I mean, there was lots and lots of people involved. The tradesmen committed just as much as the as management did. Yeah, I, I remember that. I mean, and, and to imagine what it looked like. I mean, you know what that North Steel awning looks like yeah, now. Yeah. Imagine that whole thing just crumpled down on us. It, it was, looked like it had melted. It was crazy. Yeah, and the Huskies, uh, they did beat Stanford in the season opener, and they won the Apple Cup in that stadium that year. And uh, Leidig, uh, Larry Schwartz says Leidig was able to, because it went so successfully, the recovery, it encouraged him to open an office in Bellevue. And they, it does half their volume now. He says he doesn't recommend the you know collapse and rebuild as yeah. a way to enter a new market. But it all kind of turned out for the best because nobody was hurt and the Huskies played their opening game. Billy Spinell, our resident historian, he's here every Wednesday, and you can find all his features at mynorthwest.com. Felix, thanks. Thank you. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo News Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at mynorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening, and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. And it is with this thought that we most reluctantly conclude our glimpses of Washington State.